This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocate Radio Program. I'm your host, Dennis Kubergen. Glad you're listening in today. Hey, joining me on today's program in segments two and three is returning guest, Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. Jeffrey is the founder and president of the Brownstone Institute. He is a prolific author. Uh, He is a lover of liberty, and he is a fun guy to talk to. I always appreciate his perspective. I know you will, too. You want to stay tuned. He will be joining me in segments two and three of today's program. You know, if you are presently collecting Social Security or you're approaching retirement and you aspire to collect Social Security, uh, the March special report is one that you should certainly get your hands on. It's titled Social Security Tax Reduction Strategies. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the report and Social Security and some of the changes that are being contemplated regarding Social Security in uh, segments one and four of today's program. If you'd like to get a copy of the March special report, again, titled Social Security Tax Reduction Strategies, visit the website requestyourreport.com. The website, again, is requestyourreport.com. And when you visit the website, all you'll have to do is let me know where you would like me to mail the report to you. And I'll be glad to do that along with some bonus information, including a copy of the Little Black Book on Social Security Maximization, as well as a copy of my best-selling revenue sourcing book. So again, requestyourreport.com is where you go to request your copy of the report. Now, there's a lot going on in the news about Social Security now, and I'll talk a bit about that in this segment. But when you go look at the very basic Social Security system, Social Security started back in 1935, And if you were one of the first Social Security recipients to begin to collect benefits, you did extremely well. You paid in very, very little and you collected a lot. That now has completely changed. It's really not unlike a Ponzi scheme where those who collect first fare a lot better than those who are left holding the proverbial bag when the scheme fails. I recently worked with and did an analysis for a 60-year-old high-earning client who paid Social Security taxes in over his lifetime, and the total for this largely self-employed person was $319,000 that was paid into the system. Medicare taxes, $148,000 paid into the system. By the time this client reaches age 65, he will have paid Social Security and Medicare taxes over his working lifetime of well over $500,000. Should he begin drawing Social Security benefits at that point, he'll be more than 80 years old before he recovers what he has paid in, in, in taxes over the years. But that 80-year-old plus break-even point assumes that this person will pay no taxes on his social security benefits. The reality is many people, once they retire, pay tax on their social security benefits. In fact, under current law, up to 85% of your social security benefits can be reported on your tax return as ordinary income. So if you're in a 25% tax rate bracket, and 85% of your Social Security benefits are taxable, that means you're actually collecting about 22% less in Social Security. 
now the break even moves from sometime past age 80 to sometime past age 85 or so. And that doesn't even factor in inflation. The dollars that were paid in in Social Security taxes early in your working career bought a lot more than the dollars that you collect from Social Security. And of course, the the reality is, and it's also the sad news is that should this person die prematurely, you'll never come close to collecting what you've paid into the system. So the reality is many American workers will find Social Security to be a losing proposition. And Social Security at this point is insolvent. If you take a look at the numbers, the Congressional Budget Office released numbers, and right now outlays for Social Security exceed taxes that come in. That really is the case now, and that will expand through 2033 when the Social Security Trust Fund will be insolvent. The money in the trust fund will be gone. Now, the reality is the money in the trust fund is gone already. So this is another accounting gimmick, if you'll uh, excuse that term. Now, there are talks underway now. They're, they're at this point not formal talks, but there are some senators in Washington that are saying, hey, we need to do something to make Social Security more solvent. There was an article published on MarketWatch this past week that talked about the fact that Senator Angus King, who is an independent senator from Maine, and Senator Bill Cassidy, who is a Republican senator from Louisiana, are now heading up a group of lawmakers who are proposing that the full retirement age in the Social Security system now move from age 67. And if you were born 1960 or later, your full retirement age is 67. That would move the full retirement age to age 70. Now, I don't know the details of this. I think at this point, this proposal is just in the discussion stage. But along with raising the full retirement age to 70, there would also be a sovereign wealth fund that would be created that would help fund Social Security. Now, where is this money going to come from for this sovereign wealth fund and how big will it be? Well, I'll give you a bit from the Market Watch article and I'm quoting. The potential plan also includes a proposed sovereign wealth fund that could be funded with one and a half trillion dollars or more in borrowed money. And if the fund failed to generate an 8% return, then the maximum taxable income and the payroll tax rate would be increased to ensure Social Security stays solvent for another 75 years. So these senators are proposing raising the retirement age to age 70. That's a solution that I have long said would likely be one of the proposed changes to Social Security, and that's exactly what's being considered. But they're also considering borrowing one and a half trillion dollars and investing it. And if these borrowed funds don't return 8%, then the politicians will once again go back to the taxpayers and look for a bailout. Now, those are my words, not the words of the Market Watch article. 
Now, I don't know where the $1.5 trillion will come from. I don't know who will loan the U.S. government another $1.5 trillion to try to help shore up the Social Security system. My guess is it would have to come from the Federal Reserve. Now, the article goes on to say that the Social Security Trust Fund is going insolvent in 11 years. However, that trust fund is already non-existent. It exists only in paper. That money has already been spent. Now, in the March special report, I talk about the fact that one of the things that you can do to try to maximize what you'll get from Social Security is to minimize the taxes that you'll pay on your Social Security benefits. And this is actually an exercise that can produce some pretty good results. So as time passes and we do see changes, if you're minimizing the taxes on what you get from Social Security, you're going to be far better off. Now, what we need to do is take a look at how Social Security benefits are taxed. And a little bit of a backstory here, Social Security benefits first became taxed in the early 1980s, and that's when the normal retirement age under Social Security was increased from age 65 to the current age 67. At that point, up to 50% of Social Security benefits could be taxed. And in 1993, the law was changed so that up to 85% of your benefits could be taxed. Now, when you want to determine how much of your Social Security is going to be taxable, you use a formula that pretty much just takes half of whatever you're getting in Social Security, and it adds all other income that your household receives to half your Social Security benefits. You'd add in earned income, income from self-employment, interest income, dividend income, capital gain income, tax-free interest income, pension income, or distributions from an IRA or 401k. The only income that is not counted in this formula would be distributions from a Roth IRA or distributions from a properly structured insurance product. Now, you'll want to stay tuned to the fourth segment of today's program because I'll be giving you some specific strategies that are outlined in the March special report. And again, the March special report is titled Social Security Tax Reduction Strategies. You can request your copy of the free report by visiting requestyourreport.com and let me know where to mail the report to you. Uh, again, the March special report is available by visiting requestyourreport.com. I'll be back after these words with my special guest, Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tuberg, and joining me on today's program is returning guest, Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. Uh, many longtime listeners will recognize Jeffrey as the founder and president of the Brownstone Institute. Uh, the website is brownstone.org. Uh, Jeffrey's latest book is titled Blindsight is 2020. We'll chat with him a little bit about that as well. But uh, Jeffrey, welcome back to the program. Always a pleasure to have you on. I always enjoy our conversations. Thank you. 
So, Jeffrey, just for our listeners that may not be familiar with the Brownstone Institute, talk about the the motivation uh, behind founding the Brownstone Institute, and, and what is it that uh, your objective is? The impetus for the founding was, of course, uh, COVID and the response to COVID, because I realized very early on it wasn't just really about COVID. It was about a real contest we're facing between a functioning society and what is emerging as a sort of biomedical security state that really does threaten fundamental freedoms of everyone in the world, and not just for this crisis, but for many that are coming. Uh, just realizing the, um, I guess, fundamental radicalism that the response really meant it caused me to realize we needed a serious. Uh, and robust intellectual resistance and uh, uh, to, to what happened to us and and to fundamentally rethink uh, certain fundamentals of what freedom means. And, and so that's that's really what Brownstone is about. So, Jeffrey, talk briefly, if you would, about your most recent book. Love the title. Blind Sight is 2020. Yeah, yeah. So when you say mine, it's it, Brownstone published it. It's by Gabrielle Bauer, who's a good journalist and she she each chapter just takes on one two or three of the great uh, people who were pretty much alone from 2020 uh in objecting to what was happening with the with the covid response and it, it marches through uh various medical experts and uh jurists and journalists and i guess she profiled something like about 48 different people now uh, it's it's an interesting thing to to look through this list of names because there just weren't that many people who were on the right side of history. It was really not many at all. And nowadays you find lots of people say, oh, I was always against the lockdowns. Well, that may be true, but there weren't that many, I guess, prominent names that you could find throughout most of 2020 who were fundamentally objecting to all this stuff that was going on. And the thing I found, Dennis, is I as we're looking at these people, and I I consider them all, you know, heroes in the old fashioned sense of that term, which is to say doing self sacrificial good at a great personal cost that really was not morally necessary, but uh is uh meritorious and 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 really essential for the continuation of a functioning society. So that's, in this case, uh, what I would consider heroism uh, about this. And I'll tell you what, I, I was thinking about this the other day because Brownstone held a, I guess you would call it like a private retreat. Uh, I would like you to come to one of those, uh, by the way, one, one day. But uh, uh, it was our first private retreat of scholars and fellows. And we had about 30, which is about a good a good group to facilitate conversation and learning. And I got up to talk and I looked around the room and something occurred to me. There wasn't a single person in that room who was doing the same thing now professionally or geographically or otherwise that he or she was doing in 2019. In other words, every one of these people experienced major life disruptions, uh, having to, you know, getting fired from the law firm, having to move from New York to Florida, you know, getting tossed out of academia, losing their position at a newspaper, 
uh, uh, getting their medical license ripped away, uh, you know, losing a book contract, ha- having to figure out a new way to make money through Substack, you know, whatever the thing is, that every person there had experienced this kind of wild life disruption. And unfortunately, this is what happens when you go against the norm. But you have to go against the norm in order to preserve society. And and maybe that sounds hyperbolic to you, but I, I can I can elaborate on that if you'd like me to. You know, I, w- I would love to continue to explore that topic because I think that, uh, you know, post, you know, here we are, what, th- three years after the fact, roughly. And uh, mm-hmm. I think uh, a lot of things that many people would have considered to be conspiracy theory at the time. Uh, mm-hmm. Now uh, it's been proven that, you know, that th- this is all true. So these people really had uh, a lot of good perspective. Uh, they, they had uh, a good gut. They they understood what was going on. And all of a sudden uh, it's it's becoming more mainstream. So. Yeah. Well, let's dig into that a little bit more. Yeah. So uh, just to review, you know, there was this time in the spring of 2020 where we were all sitting around at home wondering why we were doing this. How come we can't go to church? How come the movie theaters are closed? Why, why, why can I not go to the gym? How come all the businesses downtown are, are, are boarded up? Um, how come I can't even go to find a, a dentist who will see me? Um, how come I can't attend my grandmother's funeral in another state? And so it was all very strange. And we are all asking the question, why was this happening? And and that is, seems like there should be an obvious answer to it, but it's not so obvious, really, uh, why they did it, because there was not really an exit strategy or even a theory. I mean, you, for example, I'll just, just the obvious point, you can't make a virus disappear because you hide from it. You know, I mean, you can't, you can't just stay in your apartment, what, forever? Uh, that's also an unhealthy thing to do because the human immune system needs exposure in order to deal with the pathogens all around us. So what was the point? Maybe it was to wait for the vaccine, but that itself is very strange because a, a vaccine that's safe and effective it has usually taken five or 10 years of testing. Not only that, but a coronavirus does not lend itself uh, to being vaccinated against simply because of its tendency to mutate and, and, and uh, circulate and, and change, change clothes all the time, right? I mean, we, we've known this for many, many decades, and so nothing really made sense of it. And even now I ask myself that question. So just when you called today, I was finishing uh, reviewing some of this history, and I bumped into a piece of correspondence from March 2nd, 2020. That's two weeks before the lockdowns began, and, and just a few days after the New York Times had called on us to go medieval. An email from Anthony Fauci to Michael Gerson of the Washington Post, who was constructing a article at the time trying to explain what it is that was about to happen to us and why. So he writes Fauci uh, an email. He said, is the purpose of, of lockdowns to wait for the vaccine? Fauci writes back and says, no, that's not the purpose. The purpose is to keep people separated so that they don't infect each other. And if we do that long enough and drive down the infection rate to less than zero, the virus will go away on its own. And Gerson takes that paragraph and reprints it word for word in his own column and attributes the idea to himself. 
Now, uh, that sounds rather innocuous, but actually we know that just staying away from the virus doesn't cause the virus to go away any more than taking down your umbrella causes the rain to stop. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is a grave confusion. And so it makes you wonder, what actually did, what did Fauci actually have in mind? And how long, given that you cannot make a virus go away by just having everybody stay indoors, uh, how long did he imagine these lockdowns were going, would go on? And I reluctantly conclude that the answer is forever. And the reason I know that is because about five months later, he wrote an article for the journal called Cell, in which he says, you know what the real problem is? The real problem is people. The real problem is that we live in a human-dominated world. And we've been doing this for at least 12,000 years. That's the real issue. That's what we need to put a stop to. And uh, that's the article in which he said we need a new infrastructure of human existence uh, in which basically we get rid of cities, we get rid of birthday parties, we get rid of sports events, we get, a bar, we get rid of bars, restaurants, and all the normal things we consider to be society, uh, say nothing of freedom, <laughs> Uh, in his mind, has to go. So, you know, that is an astonishing, I mean, I don't know who else you could say believes this kind of thing. Maybe the Joker from Batman. (laughs) 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 But but, (laughs) it's hard to come up with anybody else who believes something as fundamentally uh, dangerous and truly insane as that. And yet, Dennis, if you think about it, we let this guy with these views construct the whole pandemic response, not just for the U.S., but for most parts of the world. And that really did happen to us. When you consider that, I mean, you should be alarmed. You should be shaken and, and really de- dedicate yourself to <laughs> doing something to stop anything like this from ever happening again. So, Jeffrey, we've got just a, a couple, well, about two and a half minutes left in this segment. Um, it just seems to me that this whole topic has gotten to be that the more these uh, truths have, have uh, been exposed, it seems to me that, uh, you know, more people have come around to say that was a huge mistake. But it also seems like it's very divisive. And there still seems to be, at least from my perspective, a general sense of apathy about this. Uh, what's your take? Mm-hmm. Uh, you mean people's attitudes? To, 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 yeah, I, exactly. I, like, well, yeah, if they're going to make I, us do it again, I guess we'll have to do it again. Uh, uh, yeah, I, that very may, well may be true. I, but what I sense is that we've been so shattered as a culture and a people uh, as a result of the last three years that people are just tired, exhausted, demoralized, uh, drugged up uh, is another problem, and, and, and feeling powerless. So when you feel powerless, and you're demoralized, and you think that there are people running the world that are much stronger than you, there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, you tend to give up and become a little bit apathetic. And I do think that's actually extremely dangerous. Well, I'm chatting today with Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. He is the founder and president of the Brownstone Institute. I would encourage you to check out their work, brownstone.org. I very much enjoy their work. And uh, also check out the book, Blind Sight is 2020. 
I'll continue my conversation with Jeffrey Tucker when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Kubergen. I'm continuing my conversation with Mr. Mr. Jeffrey Tucker in this segment. Uh, if you're just joining us, Jeffrey is the founder and president of the Brownstone Institute. You can learn more about the Brownstone Institute at brownstone.org. And uh, Jeffrey, uh, we were chatting a bit before we actually started uh, recording today's interview about the most recent jobs report. And uh, I had mentioned that on a webinar, I commented that the, the raw data said that the economy lost two and a half million jobs. Uh, there are layoffs from many, many big companies, particularly in the technology sector. And yet uh, we had politicians doing victory laps. Once the revisions were in, we created 517,000 jobs. So what is someone supposed <laughs> to believe? I have lost a lot of respect for the Department of Labor over the last year. I have to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, with these jobs reports when they come out, you know, it's exhausting. You have to dig through them and figure out what's what. Um, and, and of course, reporters never have time to do that. So they race to run the headlines, and that's largely dictated by the first two or three sentences of the press release itself. And those have been seriously politically compromised. And we see it across the board, basically with everything the Department of Labor does, whether it's the jobs reports or the inflation reports. I mean, <laughs> uh, the inflation reports were particularly ridiculous this last month, because um, uh, they all showed worse, you know, a reversal of the declines in the rate of increase, meaning that inflation is reaccelerating. But the Department of Labor didn't want to put it that way, so they said that. It's firming, cooling, <laughs> all kinds of all kinds of language, uh, and 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 of course the major media just dutifully reported it. And it's the same thing with these jobs figures. You know, once you dig into them, I mean, there are two surveys: household survey and the uh, what's the institutional survey, and they come up with different results. Uh, but what's what's fascinating is that to the extent you you see jobs being created at all. They're almost overwhelmingly existing job holders uh, taking a second and third part-time jobs. That's what's actually going on. I mean, which, if you think about it, is really alarming. Uh, you could call that job creation. But if you're moving from a kind of a comfortable full-time employment to having to, uh, to become an Uber driver and a DoorDash person, and moonlight on the weekends just to pay the bills, that's not necessarily good news. And that seems like that explains the bulk of what we're seeing uh, in job creation right now. So if you get fired from your full-time job and you have to take three part-time jobs to make up for the difference, uh, <laughs> I mean, is that, are you making a mighty contribution to job creation? Or is that generally pretty bad news for you in your life? Well, you know, I think, Jeffrey, another uh, statistic that may support this, uh, I think the fourth quarter of 2022 saw 
American consumers add $394 billion in debt, largely credit card mm. debt. Uh, mm. And that seems to indicate that a lot of people are resorting to taking on debt to deal with inflation and deal with this economy that, in my view, is, is weakening. Uh, you're right, Dennis, about that. And thank you for bringing that up. Household finances right now, and I keep writing about this, writing about this to sound the alarms, but the savings rate is very low. It's picked up a little bit recently, uh, which I think is really good news. But by up, I mean, I think maybe we're up to like 3% or something like that. It's ridiculously low by historical standards. But the amount of credit card debt that's being put on, uh, particularly by people in their 30s and 40s, is alarming, and it's just to maintain their, their lifestyles. People have not adjusted to the fact that we are far poorer today than we were five years ago, and they don't want to come to terms with it. So as the dollar keeps declining in value, um, uh, people just keep throwing down their credit cards more and more and more. So credit card debt is soaring as real income is declining or flat, and has been for the better part of 21 months. And so in other words, we're, we're having to pay more for less and then going into uh, uh, more and more debt to do it. So yeah, household finances are right now in a terrible position. It doesn't lead to any kind of good news for the economy. And I'll tell you something else that's interesting. Uh, you like to follow these data releases like I do, but the retail sales data came out a couple weeks ago and everybody cheered. Oh, retail sales are up. Well, I did a simple thing. I went to uh, the statistical packages and, and uh, uh, divided it by the inflation rate to, to get uh, retail sales in real terms and found that they weren't up at all, actually. It just means that people are spending more money because you have to spend more money because of inflation. That's not an increase in retail sales. That's spending more money for less. So, you know, that doesn't represent a sign of recovery. I tell you what, everybody, all of your listeners need to be extremely careful about reading the economic news in the mainstream press these days. I mean, it is so bad, they can't even accurately report uh, labor data, inflation data, retail sales data, and they certainly don't report what you just talked about, the, the skyrocketing of, of debt. Jeffrey, I, I want to shift gears. There's never enough time when I start talking to you. So I do appreciate you being on the program, as do the listeners. But when you take a look at Fed policy right now, we have interest rate increases that are becoming more measured, uh, quarter point at the last Fed meeting. Uh, to me, the Fed has one of two choices here. They're going to they're stay the course and the economy is going to continue to weaken because it's been artificial, largely artificial due to Fed policy in the first place. Or they're going to pivot, which is the, the new Vogue term, uh, and, and go back to easy money policies, um, which I happen to think will, will likely happen. But that will only lead to probably a bigger deflationary event down mm -hmm. the road. I'd like you to get out mm -hmm. your crystal ball and tell me how you mm -hmm. see this playing out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't see evidence yet of a pivot. What I see is a continuing uh, a continuing tightening with higher and higher interest rates, which, you know, in historical historical terms, we've never seen interest rates increase this far, this fast in the whole history of the Federal Reserve. But you have to remember <laughs> that in 2021, the Fed faced an impossible situation. We had inflation roaring, uh, nipping at double digits 
while the federal funds rate was uh, uh, barely above zero. So the great game that the Fed has to play here is to find what Powell calls the terminal rate, which is to say you need short-term interest running ahead or higher than the inflation rate, however you want to calculate it. Well, they had a huge job to do. And the thing is that once they set out uh, to do that, um, they couldn't really reverse course because that was the policy. I mean, that's, and as far as I could tell, they still believe that, which means that they need to get rates uh, at least uh, a point or two higher than they are right now in order to do something about the inflation problem. And, you know, Dennis, I, I, I think maybe a couple of months ago, I would have agreed with you that they were going to uh, pivot in order to achieve this, what they consider to be a soft landing. But when you look at the inflation data out of January, you saw the CPI reaccelerate, the PPI reaccelerate, and the uh, uh, the price deflator, the the consumer price deflator thing that the Fed follows so carefully, that also reaccelerated. So across the board, we're seeing a reacceleration of price pressure up. That is surely alarmed the Fed, and my guess is that they're going to stay the course right now and continue to ramp up interest rates a quarter point at the time at a time for, a, for until. Uh, until something can happen to bring uh, bring this inflation back to a manageable level. The new target is not 2%. It might be closer to 2.5% or 3%, but they're nowhere near that right now. So my guess is that it's just going to continue uh, this policy. Now, what does this mean? I mean, there's some good news and bad news. Uh, I mean, I'll, let me just say the good news first is that uh, your listeners can make money maybe not in real terms, but at least for the first time in 70 years, keep money in the bank and earn a return. That is good news. CDs are a good deal right now. Money markets are at least making money. This is a new world. You hadn't been able to make any money by saving money for 17 years. You had to always chase out the speculative investments in the stock market, right? But that has changed. And so that's very good news. And I think that also accounts for the uptick in the uh, savings rate a little bit. Uh, the bad news for many, many workers in this country and many uh, owners of businesses, uh, large businesses, is that it means a big continuing industrial shift out of the right side of the yield curve over to the left side. So what that means is that the big companies are going to continue to shed uh, labor costs in the form of human beings. I mean, that you know, uh, Musk set the standard by firing three of four employees at Twitter and thereby causing the company to work better than ever. Right. So that's a, that's a, a symbol to the rest of corporate America that they need to shed, shed, shed. Uh, that is going to devastate millions of people who believed that their credentials and their phony baloney experience that they believe that they have uh, uh, entitled them to a, a permanent high six-figure income while doing absolutely nothing while working from home. Those days are coming to an end, and and I I personally believe we've only begun to see the meltdown. 
Now, while this is happening, we see a huge labor shortage in many, many industries on the left side of the yield curve that involves hospitality and, and uh, you know, what we think of as like just consumer service, retail, consumer services, and that sort of thing. I mean, there's, it's, a, it's a remarkable thing. I mean, in my neck of the woods, we have all sorts of really high-end restaurants that have unlimited demand for their product, but cannot find workers to make the food and serve it and clean the pans and that sort of thing. So there's massive shortages in those sectors, while there's huge surpluses in the high-end uh, white-collar professional Zoom jobs that thrived over the last 15 years. So that's all changing dramatically. In fact, I think it's only begun to change. We are going to see the largest industrial disruption of labor market allocation that we've seen in our lifetime that is taking place right now. Well, my guest today has been Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. He is the founder and president of the Brownstone Institute. You can learn more by visiting the website brownstone.org. Uh, Jeffrey, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Love to have you back down the road. Uh, as I sure. said before, I always get terrific feedback when you're on the program. So thank you for joining us. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Dennis. And we'll be in touch. We will return after these words. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. And thanks again to my special guest today, Mr. Jeffrey Tucker, for joining us on today's program. If you're just tuning in, I have available a brand new March special report. The March special report is titled Social Security Tax Reduction Strategies. You can get a copy of the report as well as some bonus information by visiting the website, requestyourreport.com. The website again, requestyourreport.com. And I'll be very glad to get a copy of the March special report out to you. Now, prior to the break in the first segment, I was talking about the fact that there are some changes being proposed now, at least informally at this point, to the Social Security system. One of the changes being discussed is raising the full retirement age under Social Security from age 67 to age 70. Now, when you look at how much longer people live today, actuarially, this change actually makes some sense. But in addition to that, the senators that are spearheading this movement are also proposing that $1.5 trillion is borrowed and deposited into a sovereign wealth fund and invested. And if that investment fund does not make at least 8%, then Social Security taxes would go up. Now, the question, of course, is if you're listening to today's program, what should you be doing? What should you be considering to maximize your benefits from Social Security? And one of the best things that you can do is look at strategies that will reduce the taxes on your Social Security benefits. Now, Social Security benefits first became taxable back in the 1980s, 1983 to be exact, 
And 10 years later, in 1993, that law was amended so that up to 85% of your Social Security benefits can be taxable. Now, when determining how much of your Social Security will be taxable, you take half of your Social Security income and add in any other income you have from any other source, with the exception of distributions from a Roth IRA, or tax-free distributions from a properly structured insurance product. So it only stands to reason that if you can get more income from a Roth IRA down the road or a properly structured insurance product and less income from other sources, you may pay less in tax on your Social Security. Now, one of the big obstacles to people that accumulate money in a 401k or an IRA is that now at age 73 this year, required minimum distributions begin from an IRA or 401k. What that means is if you have money in an IRA or 401k, once you reach age 73, and that's a, a new age in calendar year 2023, uh, you'll have to start taking distributions from your IRA and paying tax on it. And you have to take these distributions even if you don't need them for income. And these distributions are added in to the formula that will be, de- that will be used to determine how much of your Social Security is actually taxable. Now, a Roth IRA does not have a required minimum distribution requirement. You're never going to be forced or compelled to take money out of a Roth IRA. And with tax rates lower for the next three tax years in 2023, 2024, and 2025, it may make sense for you to consider Roth IRA conversions. Now, certainly get appropriate advice from an appropriate professional. In the March special report, uh, I talk a bit about who should consider this. And again, if you're just tuning in, Go to requestyourreport.com. I'll be very glad to send you a complimentary copy of the March special report that talks about reducing taxes on Social Security. But suffice it to say that if you're married and you file a joint tax return, you do not move out of the 24% tax bracket until you have $364,200 in taxable income. Now, if you're a single taxpayer, the threshold is exactly half that. It's $182,000. One hundred dollars. Now, in 2026, when tax rates revert back to the rates that were in effect in 2017, at about eighty-nine thousand dollars in taxable income, you'll move into the 25% bracket. So, through 2025, you don't move out of the 24% bracket until you have over three hundred and sixty-four thousand dollars in income. But then, starting in 2026 you'll move into the 25% bracket at about $89,000 in income. That means many people should be taking a look at converting traditional IRAs to a Roth IRA over the next three years where tax rates are lower, and that can have a significant impact for many people on the level of tax that you'll pay on your Social Security benefits. Now, if you'd like to learn more, again, I would invite you to get the March 2023 special report That March 2023 special report is titled Social Security Tax Reduction Strategies. You can get a copy of the report as well as some bonus information by visiting the website requestyourreport.com. 
The website, again, is requestyourreport.com. Let me know where to mail the report, and I'll be very glad to get it out to you. That's all the time I have for this week's program. I hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week.